Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we're going to have a conversation about reimagining industry growth amidst supply chain uncertainty. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast today, Dan Veroni, who is the president and CEO of a strategic consulting firm called Potomac Core uh, and an expert on economic performance. Um, Dan has been on uh, CNBC, Fox, Dow Jones, um, Bloomberg, Forbes, and, and many others. And he has recently authored a new book titled Reimagining Industry Growth, Strategic Partnerships in an Era of Uncertainty. Dan, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. Yeah, thank you. All right. So before we get into the discussion at hand, um, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your journey. Sure, absolutely. Well, I've had a remarkable career starting out uh, in the trade association universe for almost three decades. And 23 years of that career was with the National Association of Manufacturers. Uh, it was an absolute joy to work with small, medium, and large companies uh, on issues that uh, help shape a favorable economic environment for all those companies and all those manufacturers. Uh, I left uh, about oh, 16 or 17 years ago. And in my final role, I was a senior manager on the senior, senior management team, I, I ran the grassroots advocacy, uh, the membership component, and I helped the then CEO recruit a senior level executives to the board of directors. Following that, I served as the first time president and CEO of an association known as Association for Corporate Growth. And following that, uh, I went to work for Newt Gingrich, where I, I ran his American Solutions Policy an advocacy organization, also very fascinating work. And 10 years ago, actually uh, in May, uh, I decided to uh, finally give into my uh, entrepreneurial uh, approach and just say, I'm gonna open up a company. But what I wanted to do uh, was to open a company that was gonna be a strategic value that would have a value imperative that represented the marketplace. After the Great Recession, I saw a number of significant changes happen. There were fewer people in the C-suite, decisions uh, about whether or not to engage in outside activity would be based on the direct and immediate return to the bottom line. Is it helping us save money? Is it helping us make money? Is it shaping uh, an, a more favorable business environment? Mm -hmm. And uh, created a strong research component and that research component helped industry trade associations uh, first uh, realize and recognize the industry's awake at night challenges, the long-term business outcomes that they wanted to achieve and understand how aligned or how connected they were with those challenges. And from that, uh, be able to build uh, a strategic industry plan that leveraged the trade association as a strategic business unit, mm -hmm. a strategic business unit that over the long-term uh, could make the industry more, more durable and better positioned uh, for growth in the marketplace. Okay, great. All right. So um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is in the book, um, you talk about the fact that volatility isn't a new concept, but the immediacy of our awareness of it is. So let's talk a little bit about that and, and why it's so relevant. You know, that is an absolutely uh, perfect way to start this conversation. 
you know, when I started my association career in the 80s, like uh, many of us, it was a talk radio, right? Or it was the newspaper. Uh, cable news was just coming into being. Now there's Twitter uh, and, and all of the other social media platforms. The minute something happens in one part of the world, we know about it immediately mm -hmm. and it has impact immediately. And what that's done is it's created what I call uh, an ear of chronic uncertainty. We never know when the next shoe is going to drop, but we're, we're confident the next shoe is going to drop. So for example, uh, if you and I were to say, did either of us envision five years ago that there would be a military conflict in Ukraine, uh, a global pandemic, uh, runaway inflation, and on and on it goes? The, the answer is we, we wouldn't have imagined it. But here's one thing we did know, that when the global pandemic hit, we knew about it immediately. Mm -hmm. We know about everything immediately. And what that's done, Sarah, is it, it's changed the way every business executive thinks. We're all wired differently now. And we're wired differently because we know that when change happens, we know about it more quickly and we have to respond far more quickly. Mm -hmm. So do you perceive that awareness as a good thing or a bad thing? So I'm going to answer it this way. It is, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it is what it is. And, and I think what it's done is it has uh, forced an evolution of leadership and communication skills. Mm -hmm. uh, good communication skills, soft communication skills are more important than ever. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to connect and communicate with one, one another. We have to be able to leverage those soft communication skills to build alliances and partnerships that will help us get through whatever challenges comes, comes next. Mm -hmm. So we're in a new era, and, and that era is a call to action for leaders who have soft skills, who have strategic, strategic skills that can see five feet in front of them and 50,000 feet around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, another thing that you you talk about in the book is um, that those who do best are those who view change as an opportunity. Um, and that's something that I would say is a persistent theme in in this podcast and the content we create. Um, what I want to ask you is, do you have a sense of what shapes that perspective? Like, what is key to the mindset that change is an opportunity, not something to be, you know, in opposition to? You know, also, also a great question. So, you know, what's interesting, uh, during the pandemic, I'd say the first six to 12 months, I had a number of conversations with executives uh, who said, you know, I'm looking forward to things going back to the way they were. And that struck me as disconnected because this is, this is the definition of a black swan event. This was intended to change we, the way we look and the way we think and act and react about everything. Nothing would ever revert to what it was. I mean, look at it right now. I mean, look at how things have changed. Mm -hmm. You know, there are 4 million quits in the job market in the month of February. There are over 11 million uh, job openings. So, some of the things that are driving that is, is it's forced people to reevaluate re their lives. Mm -hmm. Some people said, 
the way we're going to respond to what, what's happening in the world to chronic uncertainty is we're going to shift the way we see the world. Others are, are embracing the opportunity and saying, this is a time to really put our foot on the accelerator and go all the way to the floor and say, we are really going to leverage this opportunity and, and that change. But what I've learned, what I learned as I was writing the book is that those industries uh, that saw it as an opportunity that built upon their partnerships seemed to fare better. And mm -hmm. they had a history of doing that, right? So when, when I looked back, uh, so recent examples, um, I have the ability to, as many do, to trace back to things like 9-11 or to the Great Recession. You know, how and to what extent did, did people say this was a horrible situation, but we rallied. And, and saw this as, as, as an opportunity. So those who do thrive, those who don't, don't do very well at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, you can look at it by which industries embraced the opportunity best. You can look at it, uh, which companies, which individual leaders, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it's certainly, inevitable, right? So, so resistance is, is futile. Um, all right. So the book is discussing the need for and value of partnerships. Uh, one of the things you say that I really like is communities fare better than individuals. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, what you mean by the community approach in this sense and why it's helpful, particularly at the point we are today. You know, because we're in an era of chronic uncertainty, you can never have enough partnerships. Those partnerships give you a sense of perspective. Uh, they extend your reach. Uh, they, they give you a level of durability you wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. And what you'll find interesting, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the book in, in just a moment, but to give you a sense of it, uh, what you might find interesting is that at the start of the pandemic, I started a brand new CEO group called the Strategic Guidance Lab. These are 55 trade association CEOs from every possible industry. And we utilized this platform, meaning Zoom and other social platforms to stay connected to one another or, or telephone or whatever it was, but we found a way to stay connected. We built a community that said that we would rely upon each other, we would trust each other, and we would utilize it to learn from one another and, and share knowledge. And it worked out exceedingly well and actually, it worked out especially well for me because at the start of the pandemic, I began to write my book. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I was able to leverage the community that I helped create to do that. Mm -hmm. So what's, what I found interesting in the five industries that I wrote about in my book, and by the way, I looked at a number of different industries, is first and foremost, these were industry leaders that said, we understand the value of company to company strategic partnerships. And now what we want to do is, is try a different iteration of that between a trade association, between an industry and a trade association. Uh, and, and they did that because they learned from their own experiences in company to company partnerships that you, you can far leverage uh, each other's strength and, and minimize and mitigate your own weaknesses. Mm -hmm. You can get to markets in places you're not currently in. You can leverage strength, talent, technology, and resources that you don't have. 
So an example of that would be in a strategic partnership. And again, I'll, I'll get to the case studies. But an example of what I mean is, is let's look at Starbucks and Barnes and Noble. Starbucks is an experience company. It's not a coffee company. It's based on building communities. Mm -hmm. uh, its motto is outside in, focused on the marketplace and creating a third place between work and home. Barnes and Noble was a, was a, is a bookstore. It's a bricks and mortar bookstore. What this partnership did is it created an opportunity to bring the Starbucks experience into the Barnes and Noble bookstore. So when we walk into the bookstore, we, it's the smell of fresh coffee brewing, it's baked goods, and it is a third place between work and home. It's very comforting. We can meet friends or family or neighbors there and have, have coffee, or we can go and get a book uh, and, and sit and read a book or a newspaper or a magazine. And what that's done is it's created a boon for Starbucks. They're able to sell even more coffee and, and further extend their brand. Barnes & Noble has been able to extend its brand into Starbucks and sell more books, attract more people into the bookstores. So it ended up being a win-win. And what I'll, what I'll add to that point is this, that Barnes & Noble is one of the few remaining brick and mortar bookstores. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a strategic partnership. So when you look at an industry today uh, and the challenges that they face, not just domestically, but globally, how can they build a strategic partnership with a trade association and position it as a strategic business unit? So what I, what I detected in each of these case studies, I interviewed five or six business executives from these industries, did a good bit of research on these industries, is that they needed a strategic partnership to help shape the external environment on pre-competitive challenges and utilize that, leverage it as an opportunity to also to promote the industry, position the industry in, in respective marketplaces and make industries more durable for the long-term. Mm -hmm. And these are all five are powerful examples, but the deeper I get into it. So for example, the recreational boating industry because of its massive ecosystem. So these communities are ecosystems. They're every, every, every entity in its value chain. It had a partnership through the National Marine Manufacturers with the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. Mm -hmm. At the shutdown, the industry literally went to their strategic partner, the National Marine Manufacturers Association and said, hey, we need your help. We're all stuck inside. We can't go anywhere or do anything. But we know now from the Centers for Disease Control that we can go outside. We can enjoy the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And the National Marine Manufacturers Association and the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation did a, a targeted digital promotion campaign. Interestingly enough, what the result was is that there were double-digit year-over-year sales growth because people just flocked to the outside, they bought boats and they engaged in outdoor recreation and boating. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating is, and I'll go back to an earlier data point, the industry, leaders in the industry said they never expected to see that kind of sales or top line revenue growth after the end of the great recession. Mm -hmm. Cause of this strategic partnership, they far exceeded that. Yeah. 
And that's absolutely critical, mm -hmm. absolutely critical. Similar thing in the frozen food industry. You know, uh, back in the day, it was French fries, burgers, and pizza. Now you can get Thai food, Mexican food, China, you name it, frozen Italian food. Mm -hmm. And what their strategic partner organization did, the American Frozen Food Institute, is uh, they partnered with another industry organization called the Food Marketing Institute. Mm -hmm. And they generated data uh, and research, uh, and it's called the Power Frozen Campaign. They literally identify among consumers through consumer group, uh, consumer companies called IRI to identify what types of frozen foods that consumers are, are looking to buy. Mm -hmm. They share that data with the retail stores. That was especially meaningful at the start of the pandemic because everybody had to stay home. And as we all know, we all had to work. So if you're a single parent, a working couple, you needed to provide three meals a day at home. Mm -hmm. And frozen food was a, a healthy, healthy, tasteful alternative, double digit sales as a result of that effort. Mm -hmm. Strategic partnerships absolutely matter. Trade associations are evolving into strategic business units for the industry. They do have the ability to shape the external environment on environmental issues, taxes, tax issues, trade issues, and they're making a difference. Mm -hmm. So um, can you share another example or two of the... Um you know, the, the case studies that you reference in the book. Sure. Ha absolutely happy to do that. So who doesn't like baked goods? Who doesn't like baked goods? Not me. So, I mean, I, meaning I do like them. I, I try not to <laughs> eat, eat too many of them, but I definitely like them. <laughs> understand. So uh, chapter four is the uh, chapter on the baking industry. So as we think about the baking industry, the baking industry uh, has always had uh, a number of challenges, but I want to share their challenges and their strategic partnership from the opportunity of the pandemic. So at shutdown, the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration said, lockdown, everybody go home and stay there. This is a dangerous disease. Except they forgot something. They forgot that we still needed to eat. So the American Bakers Association, through its own ecosystem, comprised of organizations of the Food and Beverage Industry Alliance. Absolutely, this is absolutely fascinating, by the way. This is, a, this is an ecosystem that starts from the farm and goes all the way to the fork. Leaders of the Food and Beverage Industry Alliance convened on, on a Zoom platform, and they said, so uh, they forgot we still need to eat. They leveraged all of their contacts. They got the CDC and the FDA uh, connected uh, on, on media platforms similar to this. And they said, so we still need to eat. We'd like to work with you to develop worker safety protocols all the way and up to the logistics of delivering the food into the retail stores. They were successful. And as a result, we were all able to eat during those months of, of quarantine and shutdown. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very powerful story, but a strong reminder of the importance of strategic partnerships mm -hmm. and why they're important in an era of chronic uncertainty. So just another example from that. So there's a new CEO of a, uh, of a multi-billion dollar company 
who had just gone on the board of the American Bakers Association and not a believer. So it shut down. He called up the CEO of the American Bakers Association, whose name is Rob Mackey, and said, hey, uh, at nine o'clock at night, and said, so the state of Michigan is going to shut down my company tomorrow, and I need your help. Well, what had happened was the American Bakers Association and the Food and Beverage Industry Alliance was able to get the industry designated as critical infrastructure. That was part of what needed to be done to keep the industry open and keep the American people eating. Mm -hmm. It got them to complete the paperwork and they were able to stay open in Michigan. Same thing happened in the state of Ohio. And lo and behold, they were able to stay open in the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we think about the power of these partnerships as it relates specifically to supply chain uncertainty, how can it help um, safeguard organizations you know, in, in that way? You know, um, I think all of your questions have been spot on, but you nailed that one and I wanna share why. You know, um, there's this notion that the cracks in the supply chain just happened. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned through some research and getting ready to uh, do additional research and write a white paper. But here's what I'm learning as, as I go through this. So there were cracks in the supply chain before the pandemic. But here's what I really learned is that we were in a just-in-time manufacturing mode when we really need to be in a just-in-case mode. Mm -hmm. There were no fail-safes. There were no alternatives right? No fail-safes and no alternatives. And then the other thing is, is that when I look at how solutions are being developed, they're being developed on a company-by-company -company basis. And with a challenge of this magnitude, it needs to be industry-based solutions. The entire supply chain must and should come to the table. I'm defining this part of the conversation as a, as a serious call to action. They must come to the table through their industry trade association and focus on the pre-competitive solutions that will address the cracks in the supply chain that can develop fail-safe alternatives that can make sure that five or 10 years from now, we're not back in the same place. Mm -hmm. You know, I swim in a swimming pool a couple of miles uh, from my office. And one of the pools, uh, the, the heater broke and, and they, they need circuits panel circuits to, to fix it, circuit boards. Mm -hmm. So because of the si supply chain issues, it could be weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that in this day and age. It sounds ridiculous because it is, mm -hmm. because it is. So when we talk about reshoring or nearshoring, there is enormous leverage by bringing the supply chains together. It can be created through the tra trade association. The trade association can be the leader and the convener. It can be the neutral integrator to bring all parties together and focus on pre-competitive solutions, whether they be legislative, whether it be regulatory, whether it be executive action focused, whether they be state focused, community focused, whatever they are. Mm -hmm. But the time is now to get this going. Um, you know, uh, I absolutely respect and appreciate the administration uh, coming up with additional funding to support port expansion and so on. But what we're looking for is collaboration that leads to innovation, and the innovation can be achieved by bringing these communities together. Mm -hmm. Bring these communities together. Mm 
yeah. a very visible manifestation of that uh, is, is, are the mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. Look at the collaboration, the private-public partnership that came together and, and look at what was achieved as a result of that. Mm -hmm. We are looking for massive collaboration through a neutral convener, and that would be an industry trade association where all elements of the supply chain come together and say, what innovation can we develop and what pre-competitive solutions do we need to develop and implement? Mm -hmm. Explain what you mean by pre-competitive solutions. Sure. So we live in a, in, a, in a country that has laws and these laws are absolutely important and, and they're all about remaining competitive. Mm -hmm. and, and no one can take advantage of anyone else. And they're about antitrust. So at trade associations, there are attorneys in every room, uh, at every meeting, they, they read a antitrust statement that says we can't discuss pricing, we can't discuss competition. And nobody talks about their customers or, or anything in, in those conversations. So pre-competitive is as follows. So think of things uh, around environmental regulations, things around workforce or workplace regulations. So an example of a pre-competitive issue would be, so we know there's, there's a trucker challenge. So there's an hours of service regulation that limits the number of hours that a, a truck driver can, can drive their vehicle. Mm -hmm. So doing things like waiving that is a pre-competitive solution. Uh, coming up with ways to mitigate uh, environmental challenges or temporarily uh, postpone regulations uh, as, as we build bigger solutions would be pre-competitive would be pre-competitive solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, tax incentives uh, to encourage uh, to encourage additional investment and innovation, pre-competitive solution. Okay. Tax incentives, to uh, allow expensing and write-off of purchases of new equipment for those industries that want to onshore is a pre-competitive solution. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So we're talking about the value of these strategic partnerships, um, but you know there has to be some that that don't go as planned. Um, so you know what what are the characteristics that that a company should be considering if it if it wants to look at you know strategically partnering to achieve some of the benefits that you you've talked about so in the in the book um i write about the uh, characteristics and traits of successful strategic partnerships clearly we don't break any new ground but you want to enter into a partnership where you share the same values. There's a level of business acumen on both sides. You both understand what you need to do. You know that you need to uh, act in an informed way and, and not at the drop of a hat, that you're collaborative. Uh, in addition to that, that you're setting up terms and conditions, that you've got governance that really that, that says, this is the way we're gonna conduct this strategic partnership. These are the metrics and key performance indicators that we're going to utilize to understand how effective we are or we aren't. Mm -hmm. So partnerships do and will fail when people don't come to terms on the front end. 
how are we going to work together? How are we going to communicate? How are we going to judge our effectiveness and, and our success? That's your chances of being successful are far greater if you define those terms up front and you understand that you really see things in a similar way, not exactly the same way, because you want you want to bring skill sets to the table that you don't have and they have so, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But defining the terms and conditions of what it's going to be and how it's going to work. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, Dan. So, you know, thinking about um, what we've talked about so far and, you know, the, the call to action, as you said, that, that you want to, to leave people with, um, what other thoughts or, or advice um, would you want to share? I understand. I absolutely understand. And I'm very sympathetic to the fear and all the challenges. But this is the best possible time to see this as an opportunity to transform and evolve and take full advantage of what's next. Mm -hmm. Customers in every industry, users and end users and the end users of the end user are seeing the world very differently. Coming together through these strategic partnerships to understand what that is and to help the end user and the end users end user be successful will help position every industry to be more durable and more successful over the long term. Mm -hmm. We need to be thinking about when the next shoe is going to drop and being ready for it. Mm -hmm. These strategic partnerships will help achieve that. But now is the time to transform. Now is the time to grab the baton of the future and go for it. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, let, let listeners know where they can find the book. Absolutely. So you can find it at potomacore.com. There are links to it. Uh, you can order it on amazon.com. It's reimagining industry growth. You can also find it uh, at Barnes and Noble online and in the store. You can find it at Books a Million and uh, it's available immediately. Okay. All right. Good. So, um, so everyone check out the book and, and Dan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. It was great talking with you. I appreciate your insights. Likewise, this was a great conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. You can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn as well as Twitter at the future of FS. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.